Hi, everybody. Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates, contemplates, and sometimes criticizes current classic and cult films. I'm Steve Rubin. I'm your host. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. We're on the Lock 22 Network. Here it's always Saturday night. And I'm so pleased tonight to welcome my guest, stage, screen, and television actress, Deborah Paget. Hi, Deborah. Hi, Steve. Thank you for the nice introduction. <laughs> oh, you're quite welcome. You're calling in from Houston, Texas, right? Hi, all the way from Texas. <laughs> all the way from Texas, absolutely. Well, uh, you know, you were a performer during a very special period uh, for me personally, because the 1950s was a time when I was just first discovering movies and uh, certainly either in the theater or on television. So, and you also worked for many years at 20th Century Fox, which was in my neighborhood. I used to ride my bike down the street. Uh, they had torn down the back lot, so they were just starting to build Century City. Well, that's quite a long time ago. <laughs> it was time ago. But let's go back even further. Let's go back to Denver. You're a Denver native. Tell me about right. uh, growing up in Denver. Now, I read that your mother was actually an actress herself. Well, yes, she she did uh, performing and act. She was a good actress. She did everything. She was not trained in anything, but that was what she wanted to do. And Daddy didn't object. <laughs> so <laughs> we had one. He didn't. He just put up with all of us. You know, <laughs> he worked and made the money, and we worked and had fun. So that, that's, uh, we were all at Colorado at that time. So what was the motivation to move the family to Los Angeles? Showbiz. <laughs> my, my dad stayed in Colorado. Uh, my sister, Tila, who we may mention in this, Tila Loring, she starred in quite a few films. And she was on Broadway. She was the first one to go into show business. My mother... She wanted to dance and sing, and Mother saw that she had talent, so she started her dancing, oh, I guess she was about 10, not even 10 years old, probably 7 or 8, and she went on vaudeville stage, and my mother also did some vaudeville, and she managed the rest of the children, and that wasn't an easy job, <laughs> but there's five of us. Now, and all of them, inside. did all of them go into show business? All but one. She was very gifted, but she just didn't, she had more sanity than the rest of us, I guess. <laughs> but the other four, we all did that. And my mother, I remember we were all very young. We were in Colorado and uh, she was beginning to train us. And she just trained herself. She was an amazing lady. And she said to us as we were, oh, I guess we were about mm, nine and 10 and 14, those, those ages. But she said, you can do this. If you want to study and you want to uh, learn to go into the theater, I'll let you do it. But you have to be serious. The first time somebody says no, when it's practice time, that ends it. It's over. <laughs> and she meant it. And so we never did say no. We, we, we were always ready to get out, get in there and practice and do our lessons. And so it it gave us all a wonderful life. So, we all enjoyed the. So, um, 
your arrival in California, it sounds like you arrived either shortly before or after Pearl Harbor, I would think. Yes, we were there during Pearl Harbor. I was, what was I, six years old maybe or seven? I'm not, I can't count back that fast. <laughs> it was a pretty long time ago. But we were living next door to Paramount Studio, actually. And we were kids, you know, and I, I remember so well, they had the air, air raid sirens, the warning sirens, and they would have the men go around with uh, steel helmets on and say, turn out that light, turn out that light. And we were just kids. So we thought it was all fun and games. We'd get under the tables and turn out the lights. And of course, it wasn't fun and games, we, which we knew later. But that's where we were at that time. And you're living across from the Paramount lot. Did uh, As a kid, did you ever get on the lot? Yes. My sister was under Tila, Tila Loring. Right. Uh, she was signed with Paramount. She had been on Broadway in the show with Danny Kay, and she was the lead dancer and she uh, and and starring in the in the uh, program and she came back from there and signed at Paramount Studio and so my mother brought all the kids out my daddy stayed and and supported us from Denver and we began to dance and sing and study do everything that we were looking forward to doing with our lives in the theater well, I'm looking at Tila's credits. Uh, she worked with, um, looks like she worked with Bob Hope early on. Yes, and she uh, she did uh, she did probably five or six films that she had the lead leading roles in, and then right. she she married. Hmm? Right. No, no. I'm just looking at her credits. Absolutely. Oh, Sorry. Yeah, she worked uh, at Paramount for quite a long time. And then she married um, my brother-in-law, Jeannie Pickler, and gave up and had six kids. Her own show after that. Oh boy, that's quite a that's quite a uh, a brood. <laughs> um, that's right. Now, um, your dad, uh, I believe, was a painter. Is that true? A painter, painter, well, not an artistic painter. He was a house painter. He was, he was, was in painter. the gas business. He was in the gas business up in Colorado and uh, had an excellent job, but we all kept begging him to come to California. He finally gave in and came down and gave up his work that he really loved very much up there. And he came down and he, he became a, a painter. He painted in hospitals and different places. He taught me to paint. I could paint a house. You ever got oh. one you need painted, give me a call. So tell, tell me a little bit about your path. Now you're with your sister and brothers, your sisters and brothers, brother, and you arrive in California and your mother's been giving you training. What leads you eventually to uh, start working in the pictures? Well, when we were uh, living near Paramount, we, my brother and I went to school at a, a school called Hollywood Professional School. It's quite a famous little school now. It was uh, just up to high school. And it was a school where you went you're on the hours that you had available. You were mostly like tutor, tutoring and doing work at home and all. It was like when you were working in the studios, you did part-time, you were working part-time, you were schooling. So it was, it was different than most children do 
when they're going to school. But it was very interesting, and it was quite sufficient for good education. Uh, my brother and I, and my youngest sister, Lisa, you may have known of Lisa Gay. She um, was in a lot of films. She was at Universal Studios. And uh, she, she did about six different TV shows. She was a regular on about six different ones. And she was very successful. A very wonderful dancer, actress. In fact, the um, Queen Elizabeth invited her. When Queen Elizabeth was not just becoming the queen. She was about 24, 25. And she saw Lisa in a film, which Lisa starred in a film called Rock Around the Clock. You might have remembered that. It oh, was, sure, probably with Chuck Berry. Yeah, it was. It was. It was with him, and he, she was the leading actor, actress in it. And she was oh so popular. Well, they wanted her to come and dance for the Queen. And her agent put the invitation in one of his drawers in the office. Never mentioned it to her. Forgot about it. And many years later. They were cleaning out his office because he was retiring. And they came across this invitation from the queen, inviting Lisa to come and dance for her, to rock around the clock. So that was a, a disappointment in Lisa's life that she didn't get to do that. But it was nice to get the invitation. Yeah, I, I, would, I would say so. It's too bad it wasn't given on the right moment, I'll tell you. Any, right. any, anybody who's listening, whenever you get an invitation, don't put it in a drawer. That's right, especially if it's from the Queen of England. <laughs> <laughs> so you're in this Hollywood professional school. Are you starting to get work or are you doing mostly, are you doing background? Uh, what are we you doing? For, yeah, we were in it for a couple of years, um, but I was actually 14 when I first got my uh, contract, my first contract. We were working about, I was about 11, my brother was about 14. Lisa, she was uh, 18 months younger. We were all doing a little bit of little theater and work. And then we worked a show downtown at the uh, main theater in Los Angeles. And um, was, I forget the star of a big film star. That was our first professional job. And then I went at 14, I tested a 20th Century Fox and received a contract. And uh, that's where everything really sort of began to take shape for me. My brother went to RKO, and he went under contract at RKO. Tila was under contract at Paramount Studios. And see, we're missing somebody. Lisa was at Universal. So you, so you, guys, we were really all, ran, you guys ran the whole city practically uh, in terms of uh, all we these. We sort of called the older Barrymore family <laughs> because you remember the Barrymore of course, of course. Well, your first yeah, credit, well, according to IMDb, is a film noir called Cry of the City. That's right. And that's you right. are, you got a chance to Richard, work with Vic, Victor Mature and Richard Conti. Right. And I had, I had two scenes only, but it, it uh, put me on the map, so to speak. I was just 14, and they had filmed this film this these two scenes with this girl uh, that I played with two other actresses already. And then they tested three more. They couldn't get, there was some quality they wanted in the girl that 
They were all good actresses, but none of them evidently had that quality. And they tested me. And I, being only 14, I probably, why I had the quality, it was a kind of a virginal um, look and, and uh, personality. And I think whatever it was, I, I got the part and I was very grateful. Well, there, there are a lot of actresses who started out and had the hard, tough look, and that definitely was the opposite of you. Well, I was pretty young. <laughs> I hadn't had time to get tough yet. <laughs> Hopefully. <I'm... laughs> Do you have memories of Victor Mature? Yes, I did several films with him. Um, we did Demetrius and The Gladiator. That's right. And I have the city. And one other, which I can't remember, but uh, he was a funny man. He was a very, um, even though he was about six foot seven or eight, I don't know, he was huge. And, uh, but he was a, sort of a character. He, he was a fun person. And um, he and my mother got along great. My mama was always with me on the sets. Even when I reached o over the age of 18, she managed me, so. Well, I, was always I, there. I would assume a 14-year-old girl going to a movie set on the 20th Century Fox lot is not going to go unescorted. No, plus a school teacher, a welfare worker. Sure, and, uh, sure. My, she, uh, she's had a hard time splitting herself. Lisa, my sister, was at Universal at the same time, and she was younger than me, but she, she couldn't be at both studios at once, so my dad sort of stepped in and helped out that way. You had to have a, an adult with you besides your school teacher when you were underage at, at the studios. Now, I gather as a 14-year-old going on a movie lot and seeing a motion picture made, it was a little bit of an Alice in Wonderland kind of experience. Did you kind of feel a little bit in awe? Oh, yes. <laughs> but, you know, I didn't talk very much. I was Now I, you can't shut me up. But <laughs> back then, many years I just looked I, just, I was so shy almost painfully shy and that was great having my mother with me which she had to be but um, I just couldn't talk to people I remember that was the way it was pretty much when I went, first worked with Mr. DeMille I it, take my part learn it do it but I didn't want to talk to anybody because I was so shy so my mother always stepped in and saved me so would you say that uh, being a Fox contract player and being around other Fox contract players, you didn't socialize much? Well, I did, but my mother was always there because I was underage. And uh, right. when I went first started, I went, I went to school at the, at the studio. I was in the studio school and um, Natalie Wood was there. She was about five years younger than me. And, you know, you had, you, it was just a little room for a school. It wasn't a big school like most people go to. And there was a main teacher and she was a welfare worker and she took care of the, all the children. They had new kids come in every day and go out every day. It was very interesting kind of an education, but it was a good one. And uh, at the end of every school year, you had to go downtown to the Board of Education. They they didn't trust the studio to test you for the, the end of the year's uh, test because I, they probably figured they'd pass us no matter what. So they would take us down to the Board of Education. We took our test there. 
and uh, it was it was different too. Very interesting way to go to school, but it was quite sufficient. For one year, I was the last year I was in school. We went down there. Debbie Reynolds, Elizabeth Taylor, Roddy McDowell, a whole bunch of us were there taking our tests. And I remember Elizabeth Taylor, who was so gorgeous, and she's just turned eighteen. And she had her fiance was coming into town, and she wanted to go get a permit. She didn't want to do any of the schoolwork, these tests. And she begged and she pleaded, and she's so beautiful. How do you say no to Elizabeth Taylor? <laughs> so finally, the professor to let her go, and she said, "I'll come back, but I've just got to go get a permit." So she got off. She got away with it. I don't know if she ever went back and took the test or not. <laughs> Well, the, the first movie I want to talk with you about a little more at length is a movie that I've seen so many times. And I, I have to say that you're such a, a important part of it. And that's Broken Arrow. Um, I got a chance to meet the producer once, Julian Blaustein. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. I, I, I wanted to ask you about that film because it was a little more of a bigger part for you and an important part. Can you tell me a little bit about that one? Broken Arrow was was really the first film that I had, you know, start building in, along with Jeff Chandler, who you may very well remember. And uh, that, uh, I, I was getting ready to go, supposedly, at, when I was at Fox. They told me I was to get a passport, pack up, and I was going to go to Paris to do a picture with Jerome Power. But my mother and I were so excited, and we did all the preparations. And then we never heard anything from the studio. And finally, it came out that a young girl in France was going to do the part. And I cried for two weeks. I just cried and I cried and I kept talking to the Lord. And I'd say, why, God, why didn't you give me? You know how you do when you're 14 years old. And uh, after about two weeks, I had a call from an office in the uh, director, a new director at Fox called Delmer Days, with whom I made about three or four films. And... um, he called, they called and asked me to come in and meet him, which I did. And he told me he's going to test me for this a film called Broken Arrow. And they were going to test Jeff Chandler, who you may very well recall. Sure. And when he played Coach East in that film. So we tested and we were just already, I think they decided that we were going to play the role. And it was really... Um, and it was an amazing film. It was a true story. Broken right. Arrow was true. Mm-hmm. And so Jeff and I did the film, which we did another film directly after that. And uh, But Broken Arrow holds a special place in, in my heart because um, it was a beautiful story. Well, up, it, until, and, uh, up, up until then, excuse me, up until then, Westerns, had a tendency to portray Native Americans in a rather cliched light. I mean, you were either shooting the Indians or you were chasing (laughs) them away. And I thought that, uh, yeah. They were portrayed as very awful people. That was the main thing. Indians had always been shown to be wild, crazy, out of control. And this film really was the first film that ever showed the Indian nation as people with hearts. And kind and good, loving people. Usually they were out chasing someone with a bow and an arrow. And uh, 
this this changed everything that and how you looked at how the uh, Indian nation after that. Absolutely. And of course, your co-star, in addition to Mr. Chandler, was, of course, Jimmy Stewart. And uh, uh, you had a relationship yeah. with him in the movie. Tell me a little bit about what you remember about Jimmy. He was just such a gentleman and such a kind man. He was um, so generous, you know, as, as an actor and a human being. Like I had said, I was such a shy little thing. And um uh, we went on location. They had uh, the location was in Oak Creek Canyon, which has become very famous. A lot of uh, movie stars and political people—they all live in that area now. But then it was just a, a little bung, couple bungalows, and it was Oak Creek Lodge. It was called, and it's where the studios went. It was one of the most beautiful places in the country for scenery. And so uh, we did the film from there. And uh, Deborah, where, he was where so is Deborah, where is that? In Arizona. In Oak Arizona. Creek Canyon is Sedona. Sedona is quite famous now. A lot of, uh, a big tourist place and beautiful homes. But then it was just this one little place with bungalows that had been put there for studios. Because one of the prettiest scenic places in the country. And uh, Jimmy Stewart was so kind. He he just he couldn't have been more of a gentleman. And uh, I'll I'll never forget his kindness to me and to my mother. Cause we were always together. You know. Now, but he was helpful. Yeah, he came on the set. Excuse me. It's something I remember very well that you'd appreciate. You know, he was very tall and lanky, and he he worked on that movie. He worked every day, but one. So the one day he didn't work, he came on the set anyway. And when he came on the set, he looked just like a typical tourist. And he had about four brownie cameras around his neck. And they were just cheap little brownie things. They weren't fancy cameras. And I remember one of the crew asked him, you know, it was his day off. Why he didn't? He said, oh, I wanted to come take some pictures. And he said, well, what about your cameras? And and he said he couldn't know. He didn't know how to work the more expensive ones. He only knew how to work those little brownies. But the, he was that kind of a humble man and humorous and so kind. He was like the our director, Delmer Davis. He was the same character type, type of man. Now, is it accurate to say, and I, I forgive me if I'm incorrect, but would you say that your first on-screen kiss was with Jimmy? No, it was with Richard Conti. Oh, in, in was, Cry of the uh, City. Cry of the City, yeah. And I remember afterwards they said he, he, he they said, but well, I've never been kissed. And it wasn't really a kiss kiss, you know, it's just barely touching your lips. But I, I just stood, sat there while he kissed them. And not having ever been kissed, I guess I, my my eyelids started shuddering and flickering. I didn't know what I didn't know what to do. But anyway, I was acting, so it was okay. And uh, <laughs> that's what he said afterwards. He commented that he never had anyone whose eyelashes fluttered so much when he kissed them. <laughs> well, I've always often wondered about kissing on on uh, on in films and on you know in stage wherever is that. There's, there's kind of like a, a stage kiss and there's kind of the fake kiss. I mean, 
I'm sure you've been exposed to all types. Yeah, some of them get a little over uh, anxious. <laughs> some of them a little bit. I, re I won't say who, but I remember one time slapping an actor in a re rehearsal that got a little carried away, and I hauled off and let him have it. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. Well, yeah. that, that that tough side was starting to emerge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was beginning to, the butterfly was beginning to come out of the cocoon. Well, I particularly, in the Broken Arrow, I particularly like the outfits they created for you as, uh, um, I'm going to pronounce it, yes, Sonsire, interesting morning star. I thought the wardrobe was really nice. Yeah, they were beautiful. They really were. And uh, that morning star, do you know that even to like a few years ago when people still recognized me, that were still living, I mean, <laughs> really up in years, they people will come up and call Sonsire. Now that is not an easy name, but they've always, people have always been able to say Sonsire. And it always amazed me that, you know, they, and then another funny thing about a character I play for years, people would come up to me and say, you're alive. So yeah, <laughs> you're alive. I thought you jumped in the volcano. <laughs> and that was of course a bird of paradise. <laughs> in which I did jump in. But that, you know, it's amazing how people can get wrapped up in the film. And it'll affect them for years. And people, a lot of people thought I really had jumped into the volcano and why why, why was I still alive? I think those are the same. The I, huh? I, th I think those are the same people who think the actors make up their own dialogue. Maybe so. But it, but Sonsire was a name people actually would ask me about, and they could say the name. And it meant Morning Star. I don't know if you remember. Sonsire. No, of course. No, of course. I, I remember it very vividly. I was a big Jeff Chandler fan, too. I thought Jeff Chandler oh. uh, just was just he such was. a presence. Oh, yeah. He was. You know, he was a big radio star. You probably know that before he ever went into a film. There well, was I'm one not... radio character. Oh, yeah, he came from radio. Well, no, I was gonna, I was gonna, I'm sorry to interrupt. I was just going to say I, I'm not surprised because of that voice. Yes. Well, that's that's what it was. He was um, he had been a football player in San Francisco something or other, some, some team when he came out, out to start films. But he did radio for a long time. And he was quite well known on radio. And uh, then this was his, I think, his first picture, Broken Arrow. And uh, he was a wonderful man, very kind, very soft-spoken. You know, he's so big, <laughs> huge. Um, and then we did um, Bird of Paradise together also. And so I enjoyed working with Jeff very much. He, he uh, sadly, he died when he was quite young. Yeah, and died tragically. I think that the um, the whole operation that he underwent in yes. Culver City did not go very well, and I don't think he That's right. he did not deserve to die so young. Uh, that was a terrible loss for the business. It was. I mean, he uh, you know another one that once died so young, almost the same age was Jeffrey Hunter, and that was it always reminded me that you know the two of them had such similar. Uh, 
lives at that, it, like at that, Jeff died when, I, I mean, we're not talking about Jeffrey Hunter, but he did, he died when he was in his 40s of similar things. And Jeff and, Chandler was, he's like a big brother. They both, you know. Well, you were under contract at Fox at the same time as Jeffrey Hunter and Robert Wagner. I have always thought of the, yeah. that period of producing some really fun young actors. Um, uh, and you and Robert well, I, Wagner were, were in a number of films together. We did about three or four, and Jeff Rehunter and I did about five. His first movie was uh, a picture that, what was it? We, we uh, made it in New York, and he, they flew him in. He had just signed at the studio. And Bob Wagner was supposed to do the part, but he couldn't get off another film he was on. So they sent Jeff straight to New York, and that was his first film. Um, or, uh, Man on the Ledge. You probably never heard of that one, but uh, Grace Kelly was in that. There was a ton of people in that one. About a man climbing around on the edge of a high place in New York. I'm going to jump. <laughs> yeah, and, well, uh, it's funny because there, there was a title recently called Man on the Ledge. I wonder if it was a remake. I never thought of it as being a remake. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I didn't see it, but uh, they had a huge cast in that. I think that was maybe Grace Kelly's first movie, but everyone had about two or three scenes and that was all. Paul Douglas, just a whole, whole number of stars in it. And we were just starting out, of course. Jeff hadn't done anything yet, Jeffrey Under. Oh, here, the reason I didn't recognize the title, Deborah, is it was released under a different title. It was released under 14 Hours. Yes, that's right. I'm sorry. I'm no, going no, back that's, to the original. I mean, your, your, yeah, memory is very, your memory is so sharp, so uh, you're entitled to miss an occasional title. But uh, for the listeners, uh, this was released in 1951. It starred Paul Douglas, Richard Basart, Barbara Bel Geddes, mm -hmm. Deborah Padgett. Yeah. Uh, tell me about the part you played in the picture. I've not seen that picture. Uh, not much. <laughs> it was, I was standing with the crowd of people in New York and they were, the streets were lined with people. We worked at night on that film and they had all the police and the fire departments and uh, they were all in the street. Uh, they had probably a hundred people on the corners looking up at this building where Richard Basehart was had climbed out the window and was going to jump, and uh, so the, that was based the whole the, the whole thing trying to talk him out of jumping off the ledge. And, uh, and I, I said that was Grace Kelly's first. Everyone had about two or three scenes at the most. Right, and it but was it was directed, an it was directed by Henry Hathaway, who was one of Daryl right. Zanuck's favorite directors. No, absolutely. Um, well, he. Make fun of you. He liked, loved to tease me. I don't know if it was because I was so young and didn't didn't get the jokes or what, but I did a couple of films with him, and he would just tease me and tease me. So uh, I, I didn't never get thrilled about when when I was going to work for him because I thought, oh no, here we go. <laughs> Why do you think they like to tease you so much? Probably because you're so shy. Yeah, I was so you know I was so shy and I I didn't know what to say. I didn't talk much. Now, like I say, you can't shut me up. But then I talked very little, and um, things changed <laughs> with time. Well, after uh, 
I'm sorry. He was a wonderful director, though. I don't think that. After um, Broken Arrow, you team with, um, you've done, did a number of films with Delmer Davis. You, we come to Demetrius and the Gladiators. And for those listeners who don't know Demetrius and the Gladiators, this is the sequel. This is the film sequel to The Robe, which was, oh. of course, a big hit at that time. And they rushed Demetrius and the Gladiators into release as a sequel. And obviously, we've got uh, Victor Mature back, who you worked with in Cry of the City, uh, in, a, in a, a role which another kind of virginal role to play, to play mm -hmm. the, uh, let me see what yeah. your, your character's name it was an interesting character. It was Lucia, Lucia, Lucia. Yeah. And you got a chance to work with, um, with Victor again. What, what do you remember about Demetrius? That was another Dell Dave's movie. And, right. um, you know, yeah. And, and um, I'm trying to, Susan Hayward was the star in that. Right. Victor Mature. Well, I was one too, but not, not to that degree, you know. I had maybe three or four scenes in it was all, but uh, the girl was uh, to be married to Victor Mature, Demetrius. And she, they got her, I don't go into how, but she got into the prison where Demetrius was being held captive and he was going to have to go and fight in the arena. And she got in to try to see him because they were to be married. And in, go, in so doing, she was in there with all these different um, people that were going to fight in the arena and they were allowed to take the girls and do whatever. And I, I was in there and I got uh, caught by one of the men, supposedly raped. I wasn't, but through the rest of the film, I was just lying uh, in sort of a daze, looking straight up, never talking. It was, you'd have thought I was a dead person. And when um, it, it was a, a very spiritual role, which, which I got a lot of those kind of roles when I was young. And uh, oh, yeah, well, you you're you're visited by the great, wonderful actor Michael Rennie, who plays Peter. Oh, and I guess uh, he helps Demetrius bring you back to life with the help of the robe. And I, I'll tell you, uh, it, it, that combined with the music that they created, the Franz Waxman score at that time, it's such a, it's a small role, but a very important role. Um, now, now, you're getting a little older. Uh, by the time you make Demetrius and the Glad Gladiators, you're, you're about 20. Did you start to go to the premieres? No. no? No, I wasn't. No, no. I was much younger than that. I oh, was still very young. Mm -hmm. I didn't do that many films after I, when I got up to 20, 21, 22. Um, most of those things at Fox I did when I was younger. But, well, you, um, you certainly worked a lot with Robert Wagner. I mean, you were in Stars yeah. and Stripes Forever and Prince Valiant. Did you like working with Robert? Oh, Bob was a, a character. <laughs> He still is, and he's a wonderful man. I'm, uh, he's a fine man, and um, I'm, I'm very proud to have worked with him and to know him. He's a wonderful man, um, and I hope he's very happy. A very happy. Well, he he certainly ha seems to be happy with Jill St. John. Yes. Mm -hmm. So and, you, and you, that doesn't seem to be any 
problem, you know. Well, the the um, the road now leads you to Cecil B. DeMille, and obviously, the Ten Commandments may be one of your most high-profile roles in a film that's just pretty uh, high-profile anyway. What do you remember about the auditioning process for that? I had none. I was just called in. Uh, it was a shock of my life because I didn't try to get that part. I mean, everybody, every actress that age was famous or not famous. Everyone in Hollywood was trying to get that role. It was one of the few roles still on cast. And um, I didn't try. I didn't have to try my age to try. Uh, I thought, well, I'm not going to get it. You know, everybody's trying for that part. And then I went to, um, I was on my way down to Mexico to do a film. I, I just finished a film with Elvis, and I'm flying down to Mexico to make a film. And I got a wire, and it told me I was to report Cecil B. DeMille when I got back. And I thought, my goodness, <laughs> what is this? <laughs> but... Um, I went to do the film, and I, at some point during the filming, he asked me to come to his office. He wanted to teach me some diction lessons, for uh, which he did with a lot of of actors that he felt needed more work on certain parts of the, you know of their diction. He, I don't know if you ever heard Demille speak, but he had the most incredible voice, such depth and and. Uh, Beautiful voice. So I thought, oh, this is wonderful. I'm gonna... And I was, again, I was so shy, you know, I could never really sit down and talk. But I, I could do these diction <laughs> lessons. And while we were sitting there, I, I did get the courage up to say, Mr. DeMille, may I ask you a question? Why did you choose me for this role? And he said, which it's hard for me to even say, he said, because I feel the hand of God is on you. And um, wow. I, I you know, can't say it because it, it meant so much to me. He was a very godly man, man of faith. And it was such an honor to work with him. And, um, well, you mentioned, you know, his voice. I mean, uh, if you watch his films, generally, he's the one narrating them. And in that's fact, right. uh, his voice is at the beginning of... Um, of the Ten Commandments. It's at the beginning of a lot of his movies. Um, um, I, I, an interesting man, very, very interesting man, and certainly a man who kind of, yeah. A Lux Radio Theater, the famous radio show that was on with, he, he was the MC for years before that. Who, by the way, who was, your, who was your agent at the time who was um, getting you all these nice roles? My mother, I think. <laughs> I don't really know. I, I, I think mine were mostly just from, they saw, they, they saw me and things. I didn't do that much at Fox. Where I was under contract for 10 years or more at Fox. And I did some there, but most of them were loan outs. Right. In all right. the different studios. Mm -hmm. well, you I don't in... know, maybe something to do with it. Well, you were in the, one of the earliest adaptations of Les Miserables. That's right. That was. That's right. Michael Rennie. And, um, it was an interesting film to work on. Wonderful actors. Well, All of working, them. Were you were working with one of my favorite directors, um, 
Lewis Milestone. Yes, he's a lovely man, isn't he? Just wonderful. He was an interesting so, man. He was originally yeah. a portrait photographer, so he was very interesting in his setups. Yeah. Apparently, if you watch a Lewis mm -hmm. Milestone movie today, a lot of his setups look like portraits. Mm -hmm. So you, yeah, you're reaching. Yeah, was, yeah, Michael Rennie, of course, played Jean Valjean. Yeah, we did a couple of films together, and um, can't tell you offhand what they were, but we did several movies together. Well, um, it, it was 1952, so I assume that you did not get a chance to go to Paris to film that one. So I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. Oh, no, I was saying that uh, it's 1952, and I doubt if Fox would make that movie in Paris, so that was probably shot on the lot. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. That, you know, you, you probably know the back lot that was there. It uh, went across, it was a Pico Boulevard, and then you had uh, Santa Monica Boulevard. There were three different boulevards that that back lot covered uh, from, from street to street to street to street. A uh, huge, huge back lot. And that uh, whole village was built back there. You actually uh -huh. probably could have lived in it, you know, if, if need be. Oh, I know the I know the lot intimately. I almost I only wish I was uh, around in those days because by the time I started motoring on my bicycle, the lot had been subdivided for Century oh. City. So that was unfortunate. I wanted yeah. to ask you real quickly because one of the actors at Fox at that time is one of my favorite actors. I'm not sure if you worked with him. Did you get to know Tyrone Power? No, I worked with him once. Um trying to think i worked on a radio show with him uh remember that they used to have the stars of films do the, the show on the radio later and uh i did a, a show that ann Bax, oh i don't know who it was ann blythe had done the movie but she wasn't available so i i did did it on the radio but it was with him it was a beautiful look i mean you know you didn't get much better looking than him and very gentlemanly and uh, high, just classy. <laughs> he was at Fox. He was under contract. Yeah. Oh yeah. So when, I saw him old. When I uh, uh, flew out to California from Chicago, my hometown, for the first time to visit cousin, cousins, my mother said we were mm -hmm. at the L L.A. airport, and he came over and picked me up in his arms. Oh. My, my, my. <laughs> my, my Tyrone Power connection. Um, now, the fans, I, I wanted to ask you, the Ten Commandments was shot, obviously, on the Paramount lot, but the crew also went to uh, the Middle East to film those great giant scenes with the, the, the Hebrews leaving uh, uh, the city of Ramses. Did you go to the Middle East? No. Um, no. On, on Ten Commandments, it was Egypt, and they filmed. Right. Uh, there were six months with Mr. DeMille went, and they, I think Heston went, maybe Brenner, but that was it. Nobody else went. They used doubles the whole time well, your, your co-star co was a very strapping young actor named John Derrick. What are your memories? Yeah, what are your memories of John? <laughs> Oh, John was fun. He was funny. Uh, I did a couple pictures with him, and um, he was, you know, he was better looking than any woman. I didn't like to be in the same movie with him because nobody would see me. <laughs> <John was doing. laughs> 
he was of the Tyrone Power type, you know. <laughs> right. But he, very nice, very nice, and uh, we were and, good and friends. Then you, you also got to work with uh, the legendary Edward G. Robinson. Oh yes, oh yes. Uh, he, I did three, three films, I think, with him. One of the very first ones I did, House of Strangers, which was something else later they made it, but he was in that, and I, I had one or two scenes in it. And he was a funny, funny man. And uh, he, he was so professional. I mean, he would joke and laugh and everything around on the set. But the minute it, it time, came time for lighting him, you didn't play around. You just stood where you were supposed to stand. He didn't want anyone to move out of their uh, light because, you know, they were getting the shadows out and all that sort of stuff. Most people talk and move around a little bit. You just didn't do it. He he could tell you quickly when we're lighting the scene. But he was so smart, very intelligent man, and very funny, as long as we, it wasn't time to work. And when time to work came, he was totally 100% professional. Not surprising. Now, the fans who are listening probably would shoot me if I didn't ask you about Elvis Presley. You and everybody else. <laughs> now this is very early in his career i did the first we did his first film together that was that was um, lovely tender now did you being uh into pop culture were you familiar with his music no i i met him doing a milton burl show oh. i didn't know who he was i mean i was not into that kind of, you know, music. I was just one of my type of music. And we were both on the Milton Burl show on television. Um, he sang and I, I, I danced, sang, and we did a skit together. And it was a really funny, cute skit. And um, Milton was Milton was in, in the skit with us. And then, um, and he was very nice, very sweet young man. We, I think I was about a year older, maybe not quite a year. So he was friendly and kind of shy. You know, he he was not really that outgoing person that he appeared to be so much um, on stage. So uh, we did the show, and maybe about a month or two later, I went into a picture um, at the studio, and Elvis got signed to do it. I think it was Love Me Tender, I think. <laughs> and we did the film, and um, we became good friends. He asked me to marry him, which is pretty common knowledge. And um, I, I, if, I, if I hadn't been encouraged at all, even a little bit by my mother, my, my father didn't say much, but if, if my, my mother would have preferred, I didn't because Elvis was so popular. And unless you were around him and all saw how the the women just literally smothered him, I don't know that I've known anybody else that they you know treated that way. It was probably the Sinatra of his time. Sure. Um, and he it wasn't you know it wasn't him. It was just people acting so silly over him and constant. And it was I remember I never we never dated, but he he would come to my house a lot and we we 
date with my family there. Um, so we were very close. And he, he, he called me going back to his home in Memphis. Um, with, you know, he had his old group of cousins and all that traveled with him. And he called me and asked me, would I marry him? And I told him no. But I, you know, I really cared about Elvis. But I, I know that it was going to make my family pretty unhappy because just the life that, you know, Elvis was surrounded all the time. I don't, he didn't have any real privacy. Um, and he was a wonderful man. I don't know if you are aware that, or you, you maybe have read about it. After a show at night, he had his regular musicians. But when everything had been finished, the show was over, they would go into the back or into another room and they would they would do sing hymns. They would just worship and sing hymns for maybe an hour or more, just to relax. He loved the Lord, and uh, he, I just was crazy about Elvis. I really was, it's, but I I didn't I didn't think it was going to work would would work out. Um, and he he was so cute. He said, "I don't care." He said, "If it takes twenty years, I'll get your mother to like me." He blamed my mother got blamed for everything. <laughs> she was just a very wise woman. Well, Deborah, I I think you made the right decision. Knowing you at that time and what world you would have been exposed to, it it doesn't sound very right. But that wasn't the only time you were involved with a very high-profile man. You also were uh, wrote stories about you and Howard Hughes. He was a wonderful man. We weren't. I mean, there was no big romantic thing going on there. Uh, There again, my mother and dad were always with me when I was with Howard. he was very kind and very sweet. Um, but of course, you know, that's, I think for almost any lady, that was sort of an impossible situation. Um, he was a fascinating man. He did a lot of, a lot of good. I think he was so kind that people didn't know the, the kindness of him. He did so many wonderful charitable things for people that nobody knew about. Um, but I'm, I'm very glad to have known him and, um, had him, you know, in my life for a while. He was, I like to, I like to know good people that do good things, regardless sure. of my relationship with them. It's nice to know there are people in the world that do those things. The, the last movie I want to briefly mention, because a friend of mine uh, who's a big fan of it, was, and you got to work with another hunk, uh, Cornell Wilde and Omar Khayyam. Yes, 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 Cornell Wilde. I didn't really know him very well. He was, I mean, he, I remember him playing Chopin, long right. to remember. And oh, he was just wonderful. Um, I, I did that movie with him right after Ten Commandments. It was almost Im- immediately at Paramount Lot. And um, he was sort of, a, awesome in a way because I'd, I'd seen him as a child, almost a child. I mean, he was a difference in our age, um, but he was a, so handsome, so elegant in that film. Um, he was very much to himself, which made two of us. He, um, you know what he did the most, which was sweet. He called his, he was newly married 
an actress. And he called her every minute he had free. He would run to the telephone on the set, pick it up and dial his wife and talk for a while. And then they'd say, everybody on the set. And we'd hang up and go back and do a, do a film, you know, a scene. And the first minute he had, he would go over to the set telephone, pick it up and call his wife. And I, I appreciated that. And him, you didn't always see that on the set. So. But he was nice. He was... Um, I was sitting in an office. I was sitting in an office in Hollywood um, back in the 80s, and the phone rings, and a gentleman is asking for Noah Dietrich. Do you know the name Noah Dietrich? Oh, yeah. I know that he was connected with Howard, wasn't he? Right, right. He was Howard's number number one guy. So, so Noah Dietrich, uh, this guy's calling for Noah Dietrich, and I said, I'm sorry, uh, he's not here, but who's calling, please? He said it was Cornell Wilde. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sitting on the phone. I, I'm a huge Cornell Wilde fan, and I'm 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 completely convinced that this is a friend of mine playing a joke on me. That this wasn't really Cornell Wilde. I kept him on the phone for three minutes, complaining that it wasn't really Cornell Wilde. It, it turned out to really be Cornell Wilde. <laughs> I had to share that story Wait, because uh, yeah. <laughs> I loved him because I'd seen him in Song to Remember. And you know, that he was so wonderful in that. Well, you guys cross um, over because he also worked with DeMille in The Greatest Show on Earth. So, I mean, you guys yeah. did some of the same it pictures. Wonderful. It was wonderful in that. I don't think he ever did as much as he should have done. <laughs> Maybe it's all he wanted to do. Well, you know, he wanted to be a director. And I think he, he got to direct some rather um, uh, amazing movies. One of his last films was a movie where he ran from uh, natives in uh, Africa. It's called The Naked Prey. And, yes, um, I know. Yeah. Sure, sure. <laughs> well, Deborah, we, we, we could probably talk all night, but I have to uh, start to close. I mean, uh, you, you, not only have you been wonderful, but your memories are as sharp as a karate swordsman's, <laughs> or a, a, I should say a, a uh, what is a swordsman, a, a ninja swordsman or whatever, but you, you've been great. <laughs> well, I hope so. I hope I was able to bring up something fun. <laughs> well, you know, I think, I, a lot, I, I think a lot of people love your work and I think they love the fact that you you know, we're able to do so many wonderful films. And um, yeah, by the way, you were in an episode of one of my favorite TV series of the 1960s. I think it was your last role. You were in Burke's Law. Yes. Yes, I did some Burke's Law. Yeah. I, I like that too. Oh, yeah. Well, let me just do my well, ending here. Classic. Hmm? Well, oh, it's ahead. certainly been wonderful meeting you, Steve, and talking with you. You're a pleasure and really nice person, and I'd, I'd like to talk to you anytime, with or without a microphone. <laughs> well, that's very sweet of you, Deborah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, everybody who's been listening, this is Steve Rubin, your host of Saturday Night at the Movies. Our, our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. We're on the Lock 22 Network. Uh, we love having guests talk about film history because it's our lifeblood. And tonight we've had the great pleasure and honor to spend good time with Deborah Paget, who just brought a great deal of class, 
and terrific work in the film and television business. Thank you, Deborah, for joining us. Thank you, and God bless you. Night-night. <laughs>